Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio, and this week our guest is Darren Aronofsky. He's an Oscar-nominated director and screenwriter, and together with his longtime producer Ari Handel, they're among Hollywood's most successful indie filmmakers. And we're going to be asking them, is fact or fiction more powerful on screen? And where's the line between impact and offence? Their films walk a line between the grotesque and sometimes the sublime. In Black Swan, a paranoid ballet dancer, played by Natalie Portman, begins to sprout feathers from her shoulders. Rough start, huh? Must have been pretty humiliating. Get out of my room! See, I'm just worried about the next act. I'm not sure you're feeling up to it. Stop. Please stop. How about I dance the black swan for you? <laughs> Leave me alone! Their latest movie, Mother, was one of the most hotly anticipated of last year. Yet many who saw it felt that the violence went too far. Aronofsky is defiant. He says, all art should be disruptive. All I want in life is for people to either cheer or boo. I just don't want anything in the middle. Now, though, these two disruptors have abandoned the dark freedom of surrealism for the bright light of science. One strange rock which launches on Monday, March the 26th from the National Geographic aims to redefine the natural history documentary. The series is hosted by the actor Will Smith, alongside a team of eight astronauts, and producing it pushed the boundaries of filmmaking at minus 43 degrees Celsius in the Arctic and 250 miles above the Earth on the International Space Station. They're certainly ambitious. I am going to tell you about the most incredible place. And you know what? You're walking on it. Darren Aronofsky and Ari Handel, welcome back to Earth and welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you for having us. So, Darren, you've said that you've had success making the films no one else wanted to make. So let me ask you, why One Strange Rock? Because you could say this is a time when there are a lot more films like Planet Earth 2 and poor old Earth is more in focus than she's ever been. Why now? I think uh, One Strange Rock was interesting because it wasn't like anything that had been tried before. And we always try to do something different. You know, there's been shows about animals and there's been shows 
about different parts of science. We tried to make a show about all the sciences, from astronomy to anthropology to biology to chemistry, and to sort of connect them all and to remind people how complicated the systems that make the Earth work together to allow for life to thrive here. And you've called it a visual Bible. What led you to come up with that kind of theological metaphor? I, I think that's out of context. Basically, what I was talking about was, you know, we, we shot on six continents with six different teams in 150 different locations, uh, including, you know, the space station, and to some of the most beautiful places on the planet. But when you go to anywhere that's that amazing and that inspiring, you know, all of these different filmmakers could shoot it in a million different ways. So before they all went, we came up with a visual Bible, I just meant a handbook, that gave rules to um, all of these different crews about how to use different types of lenses, how to use different types of technology like drones and macro photography and high-speed photography, so that it would reinforce this idea when we got all this footage back and we started to put it together that the Earth was one place, that it was our one home, and that it all was interconnected Sorry, I'll just throw that over to Ari if I could, because I know you're a scientist by background. That sounds like a tall order. If I can be a bit cheeky, it sounds like a, a filmmaker's tall order to say, well, I'm going to sort of interconnect the many sciences of looking at, at one strange rock. How did you feel about that approach? I mean, to me, that was actually what was exciting about it. And, and I think actually, I mean, when Darren talks about connecting it through a visual handbook, um, that's the means by which you make things cohere and feel like they're in the same palette. So similar framing, similar uh, lenses, similar lighting. So everything feels like it's subconsciously fitting together. But in terms of uniting all the sciences, actually, it's the fact that the sciences are separate that is odd. Science is just a way of looking at the world and asking questions about the world. And there's no reason that they need to be separate disciplines, except that we've made them separate disciplines. So what's uniting them in this is that we're asking a question, the same question, and then we pull off of whichever sciences help us ask that question from different perspectives. So they're united by what we're looking at, as opposed to being diverse things that need to be united. They're united by the question. And the question is, what is this planet? How does it work? How did life start here? And how does it thrive here? And Darren, knowing your fiction films, I'm intrigued by that shift away from fiction or, or to using kind of fiction techniques, but in something that is factual. What does a documentary offer you that surreal fiction couldn't, for example? I think it's all storytelling. We're ultimately storytellers at Protozoa, my company, uh, and we like uh, to try to create emotional reactions in our audience. And I think you're doing the same thing in narrative film as you're doing in documentary film. The tools are a little different. The techniques are a little different. Uh, the order of how you put things together is very different. But ultimately, you're trying to tell a story. You're trying to connect with an audience. And you're trying to entertain people and also to move people. And it's a TV project, and that means, of course, that you, you don't really have as much control over how the audience consumes what you do. I know, Darren, you've touched on the challenge of keeping people's attention away from that second or third screen. Yeah. How much was that in your mind, and, and how did you go about it? 
Well, I think the images uh, will hopefully speak for themselves. Some of the best feedback we've gotten and compliments for myself is that every single still of the show could be an image in the National Geographic magazine. And so I think there's a lot to look at. We shot in places that you just do not expect. And even in places that we shot that you've seen before, we've shot it in a way that's very, very different. So hopefully that'll be captivating. The ideas in in it also on a different level, you know, on a, on a very, very cerebral level are really fulfilling. And something happens when you watch each episode, the emotion of the astronaut's story and their personal spiritual awakening when they left the planet sort of creeps up on you and, you know, and, and kind of touches you in a, in a way that you don't quite expect. There's so much activity, and our planet is right in the middle of it. I really wish that everyone could see the world the way that I've had a chance to see it. And yet, sometimes when you talk about it, I always hear the, the voice of someone who's been immersed in fiction for, for a, a long time coming through. And I'm very interested in that crossover because I've probably interviewed more people who've gone the other way and have, have done more kind of fact to fiction. And I think one thing that you, you said that intrigued me was that your every character in every film you've ever made. So is this a, a first sort of egoless Aronofsky project? <laughs> Uh, I, don't, I wouldn't say, I don't know. I, I would hope there's some egolessness in the earlier films as well. And I sort of surrendered to the characters that are going on. And, you know, the visual language I've used to make my fiction films, I, I, I try to generate them to fulfill the stories um, more than anything else. And, and, and a lot of those films, you know, The Wrestler, Black Swan, you know, I try to approach it from a cinema verite documentary feeling. So I guess, uh, you know, I, I don't know that it's a different technique, but something like One Strange Rock is is a 10-hour long, three-year endeavor. It's a huge undertaking with many directors, many editors, many filmmakers, many producers. I just tried to add my, you know, whatever I could to contribute to it. Uh, but it's not, you know, to undertake something like this would have consumed 10 years of my life if I was doing it alone. So, um, you know, it really was a big collaborative effort with a lot of teams working together to create something together. Ari, that does throw up a, a bit of a, not just a technical, I suppose, but a production challenge, which is how you engage audiences without protagonists, particularly at a time when people like to... They know, like to know which kind of shiny rabbit to watch. Is that something that you had to both give great thought to? Yeah, well, every story has a protagonist and every story has an arc. So one of the things we spent a lot of attention on was how do we find that arc, narrow as it may be, in each episode? And how do we find one across the series so that we're taking people on a journey of some kind? Um, and in this case, the ultimately, the protagonist, and sometimes we even talked about this explicitly where in one of the episodes, the sun might be the antagonist or that oxygen at some point might be a protagonist and later it becomes an antagonist at a different point in time. So you just have to look at, you know, what is the story and what is the point of view? And ultimately in this story, the ultimate point of view is life on the planet and the complexity of the planet and that's our hero. So life on Earth is the protagonist, I yeah. guess, right? 
and then all and then everything that challenged it which is a huge amount of challenges is our antagonist and even sometimes itself life could, itself could, yes could, could challenge it so that kind of drama is there because we're telling a story in which something happened by very thin odds I certainly couldn't call something that has taken such time and, and effort and scope as light relief, Darren. But if there is something about the mood being rather different around this to what people sometimes associate with your name. You know, you've got a fairly sort of cheery, wandering narrator there in, in Will Smith. And it's coming hard on the heels of Mother, which is one of the most divisive and emotionally intense films of the last year. Does it feel like a, a very different form of, of the kind of work you do? It's funny because I think both Mother and One Strange Rock are talking about similar issues, but from very opposite ends of the spectrum. You know, Mother was a cautionary tale, and this uh, One Strange Rock is a celebration of the planet. Uh, but they're all about our home and about taking care of our home and understanding our, how our home works. But the feeling around Mother, the intensity, and you think one of the things that you said is you like your work to either be cheered or booed. You're not very interested in the grey area in between. There was something where, you know, in a sense, you maybe sort of set out to get a strong reaction. You certainly got it, didn't you? Because it did hugely divide audiences. Did that matter if some people didn't like it? I, we always knew it was going to be very divisive. Uh, if you think about what goes on in Mother, it's very, very intense. For me, it was like taking a very honest examination of what I saw in front of me and what I was experiencing and trying to represent that truthfully. Uh, and I think it's a, you know, when you sort of pull back the covers, it, there's a lot of scary stuff out there. At the same time, you can pull back the covers and be filled with the awe and the beauty of the planet. So it depends on which way you decide to look. Hubert Selby Jr., who wrote Requiem for a Dream, always taught me that by diving into the darkest parts of humanity, you reveal the light. And I think that's one way to reveal the light. And I think all of my work has been about revealing the light, even though a lot of them spend a lot of time in the shadows. It's always about the light that's just out of the reach of my heroes. And if that means it's sometimes a bit of a fight with your audience, do you think that's, that's a, a risk worth taking? I've always been about walking the fine line and the edge of what's new, what's different, and sometimes um, it connects and sometimes uh, it, it doesn't connect with everyone. And I think it's the, the most important thing is to keep pushing the boundaries and take risks and do something that's different than anything, you know, I've experienced before. Because I think, you know, once again, you brought it up earlier, you are competing with people with two or three screens against, you know, against you. You just got to keep them interested and connected. Would you make Mother the same way now if you were starting again? Mother is exactly the film I wanted to make. It's probably, for me, the closest I've ever come to executing something. From the point of where I conceived it to the final goal, I, it really came out the way I wanted to. I wrote it in the eighth year of Obama. So if I was to do it now in the first and a half year of you know, whatever his name is. I'd love to think, I he's, think it has would have been a, probably a more messed up movie. <laughs> Luckily, I made it when I made it. Uh, Ari, as producer, I mean, how do you know when an extreme idea is working or is going to alienate viewers? And you do have to be prepared, don't you, for the, getting a low rating from audiences who may come to you expecting something else? 
ultimately it's not about trying to predict how people are going to react. You're trying to tell a story. So you evaluate the story by how well the story is working. And then you go and see what happens when people experience those emotions and they'll react how they're going to react. But you want to create those emotions in the audience. So the bottom line comes is reaction. You know, that I just I don't want people leaving a film without reaction. So you'd rather take it, the love it or hate it risk than them going out and going, you know, that was fine. I don't think it's a risk. I think that uh, having people love it and having people hate it is all part of the process. Uh, you know, w look at the reviews on Requiem for a Dream. It was a disaster when it came out. Uh, look at the reviews on The Fountain. It was a rotten film, according to Rotten Tomatoes. Yet the fans of that film are now the most emotional response I get from people. So it's not about that. It's just about being truthful and honest to the story that you have to tell. Make something only you know how to make and then get a team together of artists that you know, support it and add to it and try to do something that hasn't been done before. And reactions, of, of course, can mature o over time. We, we should say that. And Darren, I remember writing about Black Swan when it came out. You pushed your actors there uh, to the brink. And you, you often do, actually still do. I think Jennifer Lawrence has said that she tore some quite big muscles hyperventilating with emotion on Mother. Is that necessary to push actors to the point of physical injury or distress? Well, you never want injury to happen ever. The first and most important part of my set is safety. And it's all about safety. But actors want to emote. That's why they do this job. You forget, but actors start acting, you know, when they go and they go to acting class, you know, they're all doing Stella. They're not doing, you know, some soap opera. They want to really, really express themselves. I wasn't pushing Jennifer on that day. If anything, I was pulling her back to remember that we were just making a movie. And I never, you know, I, I don't work well with method actors. I work best with actors who basically when you say cut, it's over and the emotion's gone. And when I say action, uh, you know, they're able to go deep into it. But part of acting is finding emotions and finding places to go that are extreme because uh, that's the stories we tell. If you look at real human movies, you're looking for true emotions. And often, you know, characters are in places where extreme things happen to them. You approach it with honesty, you approach it with truth, and you're always thinking about safety, physical safety. It's, I've never had that situation where an actor was so emotionally um, overwhelmed by the material um, that they lost control and hurt themselves. But I think we felt there was something new in the intensity, a new kind of intense director when we uh, first encountered you, or at least I sort of had seen some of your early work. But then when Black Swan, both, it was what you call in, in British English a Marmite film, you know, absolutely people loved it, or particularly perhaps in the ballet world, they didn't love it so much because they felt it made them all look a bit That's not, that, that's actually, I, that was a few, um, a few voices. Uh, you will find many people in the ballet world, because I still have a lot of friends in the ballet world who, who love the film and, and, uh, and recognize that we were telling a gothic tale, that we were telling a reenactment of um, Swan Lake, you know, set in, in, in the ballet world. Um, and they had a lot of fun with it. So a few of those voices got a lot of press. And it's just, you know, it's all clickbait of people trying to put ideas out there that just if you actually polled the ballet world, the ballet world would be incredibly supportive of Black Swan and what it did for 
definitely for the economics of the ballet world. Uh, one thing we, sh- we should dwell on is the very different budgets that, that you've both worked on. I think it's perhaps a, a bigger spread than a, a lot of people in the business. Some of these, these works are raking in $300 million at the box office, but the budget, for instance, of Noah was 10 times that of Black Swan. What accounts for that? And does it because certain kinds of film or certain kinds of subjects or certain films uh, featuring women in central roles are just harder to sell? Ari, why don't you have a word on that? The budget has to do with what it takes to tell the story you're telling. And that's it. And ultimately, you know, the challenges of making a film at a big budget and a small budget are are the same, which is using your resources, which are always going to be limited to maximize the power of the story you're telling, which you always want to maximize. So how do you minimize and maximize and fit that puzzle together? And it's always the same challenges. You don't have enough time, you don't have enough money, and you have a lot to accomplish. And that's about it. Hang on. So if I offer you both $10 million to make a movie or $100 million, which one are you going to take? It depends on the movie. It could be a mistake. If you have a movie that needs to be made for $10 million and all of a sudden you have $100 million, you're not going to make the best movie. You're actually going to make a worse movie with, yeah. with that budget. I mean, all of the uh, limitations of budget actually turn into our strengths. Um, when when, when a, the box is drawn of what we have to make a movie in, it's always the box is always too small. And then we have to figure out a visual style and a schedule that could make it work. And usually we turn that into our advantages. And I imagine there was a time for you, Darren, when you were back at Harvard, when the idea of anyone paying you, let alone cast and crew of hundreds to make movies or to make an exciting new television project was a pretty distant dream. Tell us a little bit about your first steps. Yeah, I mean, it was a long road to get here um, and lots of little steps and, and, and a lot of struggle. Um, but I think sticking to just sort of telling the stories that um, I wanted to tell has has done well for me. And that's kind of the thing that I, when I do teach, I, I talk about, especially in today's world, we want diverse stories. We want individualistic stories. And I encourage my students to always tell the story only they could tell. You started with a crowdfunded film, didn't you, Pi? <laughs> it was pre-crowdfunding, uh, although I, I wish I had that, turned that idea into Kickstarter uh, <laughs> at the time. But, you know, we just went out to everyone we knew and asked them for $100 each with, uh, with the promise that if the film made money, they get $150 back. And definitely, right, I can still remember the day I, I was signing those checks. It, w- it was a big thrill. <laughs> just as well they got the money back. Otherwise, you'd have been avoiding them for the next two years, really, wouldn't you? Exactly. <laughs> no, I think at $100, it was everyone was thinking they would never see the money again, and they were just doing a friend a favor. That's why they call them angels. And, and now that you're at the stage where people queue up to finance your ideas, I mean, you must turn down far many than, than you ever even consider going on with. How do you keep an edge when you're no longer limited in what you could take on? And does it make you a bit self-indulgent? I mean, I try to, uh, once again, just tell something that I think would be interesting to myself, a subject matter that I find interesting, that I'm curious about, that I want to spend two, three years thinking about and focusing on. I try to work with actors who inspire me, who I don't know exactly what they're going to do, but I know they want to do something very original and different. Do you ever disagree? I mean, you clearly you two work together, sort of you know, bring your different skills to it and very happily and overall successfully. Do you ever sort of look at things and one of you says, this would be great, and the other one says, that would be a complete turkey, let's not even bother? I mean, we have a very open and honest conversation about all the material, 
And I think uh, because it's a collaboration that me and Ari have had since college, we know each other's ideas and we have a lot of respect and trust in each other's opinions. And and we bounce ideas back and forth and we really don't move forward on something until we both sort of um, can wrap our heads around it. Well, let's look at another biblical epic uh, quickly, and that, that's Mary Magdalene. It had its U.S. distribution delayed uh, because of the collapse of the Weinstein Company. How is the fallout from that affecting filmmaking? Presumably films stalled, but also about the, the way that roles are now being changed. Is it going to change the way, for instance, that you cast women? Look, I, I think there's tremendous potential in what's happening um, and excitement for you know, something that's taking a very, very long time to arrive, something that is completely obvious now. Uh, it's funny because I've been watching all this footage from um, the ERA movement in America back in 1977, and the knowledge and the ideas were out there and have been out there for so long, yet um, it's finally amazing that um, everyone's talking about it and, and changing, changing the future for ourselves and for our children. Darren Aronofsky and Ari Handel, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. But what do you think is there a line filmmakers shouldn't cross in seeking to elicit a strong reaction from us? And how can prominent directors like Darren Aronofsky help address the gender imbalance in film and TV? Do get in touch with us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. I'm Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.